break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here with you on The Punch-Out. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. And we got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. And today... As we start out a new week, we want to focus on why we don't need a new Cold War with China. In the aftermath of President Biden's comments that the United States would go to war with China over Taiwan, the issue of great power confrontation between the U.S. and China has come into an even sharper focus. If you live in the United States, everything you hear about China is essentially bad. In the U.S. national defense strategy, China is referred to as a quote-unquote revisionist power, evil and sinister, and looking to bend the world to its will. Now, what exactly that will is, what its goals are, and so on and so forth are never quite clear, but you know it's bad and that it's somewhere in the realm of quote-unquote world domination in the sense of a comic book supervillain. And in that vein, it's easy to concede the U.S. should be doing something along the lines of what it's doing now, massively increasing the war budget in all possible ways and giving away tax breaks worth hundreds of billions of dollars to American corporations to help them, quote unquote, compete, all while waging a new Cold War designed to contain China's rise and making sure that just about every other country that isn't the U.S. and China is caught in between, trampled on and forced to make zero sum decisions no matter what the best interests are of their own people. And all of this, even at the risk of war, even at the risk of nuclear war. What if, however, I told you that a sober evaluation of China's own goals suggests that over the next 30 or so years, China's goals are simply to help their citizens live longer, be more educated, and also have more equitable overall lives, all without destroying the planet in the process. Well, that doesn't sound so sinister, does it? And hey, That may be why you never hear anything about China's actual goals in the U.S. media in the first place. So why don't we just walk through some of the actual facts here to help improve all of our understanding? This is a very complicated issue. There's a lot that could be said. But again, we want to just stick to some basic levels of understanding to make the point that a new Cold War is not the nature of the relationship the U.S. should have with China. Now, China's two goals for the first half of this century are to become a, quote, moderately prosperous country by 2035, and a, quote, great modern socialist country by 2050. Now, the baseline metrics for meeting these goals are that by 2035, quote, China's per capita GDP will reach 51 to 57 percent of the U.S. rate. And by 2050, China's per capita GDP will equal 70 to 89 percent of the U.S. rate. Now, in everyday terms, this can be understood a couple of ways. In the most rough and ready sense, it means that by 2035, China wants the average person to have a living standard 51 to 57 percent of what the U.S. has, and by 2050, 70 to 89 percent of what the U.S. has. Well, that sounds like a real scary prospect, right? 
the Chinese people aim to live 87% as well as people in the U.S. do on average right now, except they only want to do that 30 years from now. But we have to really add a layer when you understand what GDP actually measures. Per capita GDP is just dividing the GDP equally among every person. So it's just a general measure of prosperity, quote unquote, but it's a very rough one. What's really at stake is the size of the pie, that is the overall wealth, that can be redistributed in various ways. Now, of course, we know in the U.S., this happens in a deeply unequitable fashion. But it could, of course, be done in such a way that improves the lives of the average person. So that's basically what China is saying, is that they want to have a significantly expanded pie roughly comparable to what the U.S. and Europe have to redistribute in various different ways. And China, of course, does address the issue of equity, making it clear that they do not want to follow the U.S. model in that respect. They refer to their development philosophy as, quote, people-centered comprehensive development. End quote. And they explain that this means that, quote, this requires attention not only to material aspects, but also to the people's spiritual, social, cultural and ecological development and security throughout their whole lives. Therefore, in the developmental process, we promote the coordinated development of the economy, spiritual well-being, society, cultural and ecological civilization, end quote. And in practical terms, the Chinese government has laid this out, meaning that they want to have a significant expansion of arts and culture, an increased focus on science and technology. They want to provide equitable access to healthcare for all people and turn healthcare into a quote unquote pillar of their development efforts. And they want to make sure this is all done in a way that combats the dangers faced by climate change. So, again, just to summarize where we are, China's goals are to improve the lives of its people and not destroy the planet. Hmm. What's so sinister about that? Now, before we go into analyze this a bit, let me just mention one other aspect. China also raises important development principles that, quote, people play the principal role in socialist modernization and, quote, the driving forces of socialist modernization are enthusiasm and creativity, end quote. And this, of course, is an allusion to, quote unquote, democracy, the idea that people should be able to have some control and direction over the broad course of their society and that true flourishing can only happen when people feel this type of ownership and the ability to put their, quote, enthusiasm and creativity to good use. Now, this is important because democracy is one of the main areas we are told that we have such great divergences from China. Chinese people themselves, however, don't seem to agree and seem at least basically satisfied with the general direction of things. For instance, Harvard University's Ash Center did a long-term survey with tens of thousands of people, six separate waves of questionnaires from 2003 to 2016, and some additional field work. And when they released all the results and analysis in 2020, noted, quote, 95.5% of respondents were either relatively satisfied or highly satisfied with the government in Beijing. And this comports with a number of various studies over the same time period. For instance, in 2012, the World Values Survey noted that more than 60% of Chinese respondents said that they felt quote-unquote free. In a 2008 Asian Barometer survey, they found that 78% of Chinese agreed with the phrase, quote, my government would respond to people's needs, end quote, the highest of any country surveyed. And in fact, it's hard to find any real expert on the subject that will tell you anything other than Chinese people are essentially at least fairly satisfied with the performance of their government and at least relatively satisfied with their role in the broader process in determining what the government does. And in fact, they tend to outpace almost all other countries in these various metrics. Hmm. It's almost as if, quote unquote, democracy can mean many things, not just one. So what to make of all of this? Well, first off, it seems fair to say that this all sounds 
relatively reasonable. China's basic thrust is they want people there to live well, much better than they do now, and worlds better than they did in 1949 when the People's Republic of China was founded. They also want to make sure that it doesn't destroy the planet in the process of doing all this in the way that capitalist modernization obviously has. On what basis should that make them our enemy? And why should we be looking at confrontation rather than cooperation? Well, that's a key point. Because for whom is it really a problem that China is obviously rising? Well, for lack of a better phrase, billionaires in the U.S., For China to achieve its goals, it's true that this is unlikely to happen in the current U.S.-led, quote-unquote, rules-based international order, where the U.S. makes the rules and everyone else just has to follow. It also undoubtedly means that some U.S. companies won't be the number one company in their particular lane. It also means that various countries around the world will be dealing with China more than the U.S. and won't bend as easily to the U.S. will of how the world should work. Now, we all know U.S. policy isn't really controlled by us. I mean, is there anyone who doesn't really recognize big money is basically calling the shots? So at the end of the day, it boils down to this. Politicians and their wealthy backers don't want to lose the ability to control every other country and what they do at all times for their own benefit. That's the benefit of the capitalist to make profit. China's rise obviously threatens their ability to determine what all countries and all corporations do at any time and anywhere. So that means China must be turned into an enemy and hobbled in their growth attempts. But really, you should ask yourself, are you benefiting from these massive U.S. wars abroad, the huge military-industrial complex, the lack of action on climate change, the inability to pass the laws that seemingly would do anything to help working and poor people? I mean, the U.S. can't even pass enough money to fix all the bridges that might fall down and kill thousands of people. So if your answer to that question is, huh, good point, I'm not really benefiting that much from this, well, then you might want to ask, why are you likely to benefit from the fruits of all that, which is a policy of confrontation with China? Let me just throw one more log on this fire. Right now, Congress is debating a bill that has gone by various names, most notably the Competes Act. This is aimed to help the U.S. quote-unquote compete with China and advance manufacturing, primarily the chip industry. The centerpiece is a research tax credit that's basically a $125 billion giveaway to a handful of corporations who quote-unquote compete in the broader chip industry. What's really notable about this is These companies have to do all this research anyway to stay competitive. So essentially, they are just getting money for something that they would already do. But you might say, okay, okay, fine, fine, but hey, they'll be able to use that money to invest in other areas and create jobs, right? Well, just think about that for a second. Based on everything you know, is that really the most likely scenario? Or is it more likely they'll just give that money back to rich shareholders and stock buybacks and dividends? Thought about it? Yeah, right. Exactly. And this speaks to the final major point here. There is wide scope for cooperation between the U.S. and China, most notably on climate change. But the hypercapitalist economy in the U.S. means we can't even really take advantage of that to improve the lives of the broadest number of people. Take, for instance, solar panels. Of the top 10 solar panel manufacturers worldwide, eight are Chinese, one is American. Now, if what you want to do is create more jobs at the American one, the easiest way to do that would be to note the demand for solar panels, what's needed to increase production there, and directly subsidize that company to meet that goal. In other words, it takes planning. Instead, we just leave everything to the market and the profit whims of the ultra-rich, and the government then just pretends it's using things like tariffs to improve the prospects of U.S. companies. In reality, the U.S. imports huge amounts of its capital goods from China. So even to quote-unquote decouple, as some argue for, the U.S. would have to massively import more products from China. So there really is no decoupling. 
Realistically, the only way to expand the U.S. manufacturing base and increase the number of jobs would be to take control of the investment decisions being made by Wall Street casino gamblers and make targeted investments based on what we need to improve people's lives. Also to take into account the capabilities we have to actually do that right now, maximize that, and then to make the other investments needed to improve those capabilities in the long term and allow more to be done overall. This sort of attitude is exactly what we need to maximize the benefits of working with all sorts of countries around the world while also maximizing well-rounded growth here. Without serious planning and democratic control over corporations, over their investment decisions, we can't make anything happen in this country that's actually going to improve people's lives. The only thing we can do is what we've been doing so far, which is maximizing profit at the expense of people. So listen, I could go on and on here. It's a deep topic. There's a lot to be said. There's a lot to be said about China's role in the world. But let's just remember the basic point here, which is about whether or not we need a new Cold War. China's goals are pretty straightforward. Whatever contradictions and issues arise, the thrust is they're trying to improve people's lives in China, and they also want to make sure that doing that doesn't destroy the planet. So we can either work with that and try to find a way to cooperate and get along or spend trillions of dollars on highly destructive weapons of war and starve every critical need in the United States and potentially risk even a nuclear war because a handful of billionaire-backed politicians say China is the enemy because it's restricting their ability to make unlimited profits. Now, clearly, one of those types of decisions is going to do something for you and I, and the other is taking the world down a massively destructive path. I'd say now is the perfect time to do a U-turn away from the new Cold War. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 